have been wondering or have been um, sharing some kind thoughts and prayers for our family. As many of you know, my dad passed away um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'll be taken off tomorrow to visit family where our services will be next weekend for my father up in a little town of Walla Walla, Washington. So you can pray for safety for us. Um, but even more than that, uh, pray for family and friends that need to make decisions for God because life is not certain. And my dad's biggest wish when we were talking about uh, the services, you know, planning, should he pass away? What would he like? He wanted it to be something that would reach the hearts of people and help them to choose to be in the kingdom also. Because he knew who his Redeemer was. Uh, his destination, uh, as far as the blood of Christ, was guaranteed. Um, not in his own merit, but in Jesus' merit. So pray for us. Pray for the, the opportunities that this will afford. Um, some of you, seeing the decisions made today, might be feeling a stirring in your heart if you haven't uh, been baptized or if you'd like to officially become a part of this church family. Um, I don't have a big appeal or, or a card for you today, but don't let that hold you back. Uh, talk to me. Text me. My number's in the bulletin. Uh, get in touch with me, and we will help you journey along this same path as well. Oh. Since you mentioned it, this is from the church family, oh, wow. and um, we wanted to help every single way that we could, and so of course our prayers will be with you guys. Wow. Amen. Thank you so much. You guys have been, I don't expect or ask for any of this, but it is very much appreciated, and thank you so much. We love, we love you guys too. We really do. I will not express my love to you very close. I have a bit of a head cold I'm working through, so save the hugs and kisses for another time. <laughs> but thank you so much. Sermon title today is Your Gethsemane. We're still in our sermon series, People of Prayer. Gethsemane, where does that word come from? Where, where do we remember that word? What story? It's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an Aramaic word. It means the olive press. And I couldn't help but remember kind of a, a bad pun, but it was a profound pun. I remember hearing one time, in fact, it might have been my dad who, who told me this one, dad jokes. He said there are some people in life that all they want to do is get some money, get some money, get some money, right? You know people like that? He said, the people that just want to get some money, what they really need is they need Gethsemane. But isn't that right? All of us need Gethsemane. So we're going to take a journey through this story. For some of us, it may be the first time. For others, we've been through it many times. But I want you to pray that God will speak to you what you need to hear this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, 
Our target is verse 36. Sarah and I got to travel, as you know, to Israel last year, and nobody knows exactly where the Garden of Gethsemane is, but there is a historic, um, traditional area. So we got to see some really old olive trees. Olive trees are unique because they don't have clear growth rings, annual growth rings like pine trees do, for example. And, and most of the time, the core rots out anyways. And so it's really hard to tell how old they are. But some of these trees in this particular garden, which is close enough to the general region, um, are very, very old. Uh, some could be even as old as the time of Christ. So we got to see these things uh, and imagine what it might have been like uh, during the time of Jesus. But Gethsemane was a place that Jesus liked to go to. Jesus liked nature. He liked quiet retreats. Some of you know what that's like from being in a busy job, a busy home environment, and finding a place to escape. So he would go to Gethsemane, a place that probably had olive trees like this, a place of solitude, a place of quiet. Matthew 26, verse 36, then Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, to a place where they would press the olives. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Speaking to just nine of his disciples, because what does the next verse say? It says, and he took with him, who? Peter, and who else? James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. Now, what are some other examples of times when it was just Jesus and the, two other, or the three other core disciples? Do you remember at least one other story? The transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus left the nine below. We talked about that the other week. And Peter, James, and John, the ones that were closest to him, the ones that he kind of had as a part of his inner circle. He took them further into the garden. And it says Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus knew what he was marching towards. And on every level, he was sorrowful and deeply distressed. He didn't just hold it to himself. Verse 38 says, And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to what? Even to death. This was such a deep weight that it felt like it was crushing his life. I don't know if you've ever felt something like that. I, I'm not sure that I ever have felt something that heavy. But Jesus was preparing to go through the cross experience. And surely from a, a, a physical level, he knew it's going to hurt really, really bad. Who of you looks forward to moments where you hurt really, really bad? Right? I don't think any of us do it if we're in our right mind. You say it's going to hurt? Oh, good. We shy away from that. 
You shy away from that. I'm a big wimp when it comes to even like little needles and stuff. I kind of have to take blood. <laughs> Only seven minutes, guys. You can do it. <laughs> I'll be gone. <laughs> I will be. <laughs> we shy away from painful experiences. And no doubt, Jesus in his humanity didn't want to experience such a painful and awful death. It was a humiliating death he was approaching. You know, they didn't clothe you in a baptismal robe up on the cross. You were either naked or basically in your underwear. And in that society, it's not like these days, in that society, that was a deeply shameful thing. Deeply shameful. There's an Old Testament story where some of David's men, I believe, got their beards cut off, or, or half of it, and their robes were cut right off, exposing their behind. And they said, well, what should we do? And David said, wait in that city till your beard grows back. Because you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to let them get the better of you and shame you in this way. Now, obviously, they could change their clothes. So there was a shame and honor society where to be dishonored sometimes was, was worse than death. And so here, crucifixion was designed to dishonor you to the highest level as they killed you and as they killed you slowly. Jesus wasn't looking forward to this, to the pain, to the dishonor and the shame. But the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says that he scorned the shame. He said, who cares about the shame he was focused on the goal and the prize ahead, souls being saved in the kingdom. But the biggest weight that was upon his soul was the weight of the sins of the world. The junk that you and I have done, that was weighing deeply on him. And he knew for the first time, as he go, goes through this cross experience, he was going to be separated from his father and in that moment of sin, he didn't know, with the cloud of sin hanging over him, he didn't know if he'd ever make it back to his father. Our temptation, I've said this before, is to let go of God, and then we sin. His biggest temptation was to not let go of God, to not separate himself from the father he wanted to, to take the escape hatch and just go straight back up to heaven. And he could have done it. He hadn't sinned. He could have said, it's too much. I reject this plan. We're going to let the earthlings suffer for their own sin. And so as he goes into the garden, he is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And so he said to his three closest companions on earth, stay here and watch with me. What did he mean by watch? He was saying pray. Be spiritually alert. He wasn't saying be on the lookout because I know Judas is going to come. He was going to let Judas come and take him anyways. Let the soldiers take him. Pray here. Watch with me. He went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh my father, if it is possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup referred to here? This is his experience, the sorrows that he is about to go through, the the punishment of sin that he's about to, to feel. Let this experience pass from me. Jesus wanted another way. But in that first prayer, how did he conclude? He said, but not as I will, as you will. Prayer number one, complete. No doubt he said many other things not recorded here. Eventually, verse 40, then he came to his disciples and he found them doing what? Sleeping. They were knocked out. He said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? Peter, just 60 minutes. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. How many times had Peter said, Lord, I will do whatever you want. (laughs) When it came to willingness, Peter had it. He was willing, but he was weak. God, I will never deny you. I will be the last to deny you, and I won't even deny you. I'll die for you, Jesus. Peter, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is really weak. You need to be praying, Peter. And so the Bible says again, a second time he went away and prayed, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Now there's a slight shift in his prayer. What's different about this prayer versus the first prayer? Yeah. He's not asking for the cup to be taken away this time. He's just saying, okay, if this is the only way, if this is the way it has to be, then this is what we will do. Let your will be done. What happened between that first prayer and that second prayer? Bible says in Luke, between the first prayer and the second prayer, God actually sent an angel. You can look at it later, Luke 22, 43 and 44. It says that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he, po- he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. An angel strengthened Jesus, but even in that strength, he still found himself sweating blood. And there are medical conditions that they have used to describe this experience. It's happened to other people. Uh, A pianist one time was practicing so intensely and so earnestly, and he had a similar experience. But it only happens when you are going through extreme, extreme torture and uh, anguish and focus. So this second prayer is a little bit different. If it can't pass away, then let your will be done. Verse 43, and he came in Matthew and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. You ever had heavy eyes before? I sure have. Sometimes I'm trying to pray, and my eyes are heavy, and I'm falling asleep, and I I remember the words, can't you pray, watch with me for one hour, and Lord, my spirit's willing, but my flesh is weak. 
comes back to them just when he needs emotional support and encouragement. And they're not even paying attention to what's going on. They missed seeing even the angel that had strengthened him. 44, so he left them and he went away and he prayed a third time saying the same words. If this is the only way, God, then this is what I'll do. He came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Three times Jesus prayed a prayer, hoping, wanting for another way, but each time concluding it saying, But not my will, but your will be done. What's the Gethsemane experience? There are two battles in Gethsemane, but the first battle Jesus was facing was the battle of surrender of your will. Surrendering his will, his desire, a very good and natural desire to not go through pain, to not separate from God, to not experience the penalty of sin. Jesus didn't want that pain. But he said, your will be done. Hoping, <clears throat> hoping to avoid this. <laughs> this could get messy. <laughs> Back this up a little bit. <clears throat> First battle, battle of surrender. Sometimes this makes it worse. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. I've had these backfire on me, so. First battle, battle of surrender. Have you ever wondered, though, like, <clears throat> why do we have to surrender? Is the Christian journey just a journey where we give up our brain? Just stop thinking. Just say yes. You ever wondered about that? Why is it important to surrender? Think about that. Turn to the person next to you for a moment. Is God just saying, my way or the highway? In my own experience, when I just do it my way, it gets me in a bad spot. Like it says in 12-step groups, your own best thinking got you here. (laughs) 
right? Your very best thinking, your very best planning got you to this point. God in his love sees all things. He looks down and he says, just trust me on this one. Just surrender. Because Jesus surrendered, we can be saved. It takes a strong person to surrender. To realize you don't have all the wisdom that you need. The first battle, battle of surrender. But there was a second battle in Gethsemane. Any ideas what that second battle was? It was a battle that Jesus was trying to get the disciples into prayer. Three times he told them, he encouraged them. And it wasn't just because he needed the encouragement. He knew the tests that that were going to come to them. And so three times he appealed to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Three times, knowing the struggle that they were about to face. Peter, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Just watch and pray. So the battle of Gethsemane is really a twofold battle. It's a battle, number one, to get to prayer. In a world that distracts us from prayer all the time. What are things that distract you from prayer? Everything. (laughs) Cell phone, computer, family, work, discouragement, thoughts running through our mind. So many things keep us from prayer. The first battle of Gethsemane is to get to Gethsemane, to get to that place of prayer. great preacher was once asked, well, how long did you pray for this morning? He said, oh, only about five minutes. But he said, it took me about 45 minutes to get into prayer. 45 minutes of wrestling and and trying to focus the mind. Sometimes prayer feels like that. Battling different things and then breaking through and having quality communion with God. The first battle of Gethsemane is the battle to get to Gethsemane, to get into a spirit of prayer. And the second battle is the battle over who has the last word in your life. My will or thy will? My will be done or your will be done? I'm glad that Jesus listened to the will of his Father. His own will, really. Every day, we face the Gethsemane test. Will we get to prayer? And when we get into prayer, who are we going to let win? God's agenda or my agenda? 
But the success that we have in those battles will determine everything else in the rest of our life. Where did Jesus anguish the most? It wasn't on the cross, it was first in the garden. Where did he sweat drops of blood? It wasn't hanging upon the cross, it was praying in the garden. I shared this quotation with you earlier, famous preacher Haddon Robinson. He said this, where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha, it was in the garden of Gethsemane There he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears from the one who could save him from death. Hebrews, quoting Hebrews there. Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. If he's so broken up when all he's doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the same calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? They're not worried about anything. They're just sleeping, trusting in God. That's what we might think. And yet, when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage, and his three friends fell apart and fell away. Because he won in Gethsemane, he won on the cross. Because he surrendered his will in that garden, His victory on the cross was guaranteed. He'd already made his decision, like Daniel chapter 1. Daniel said, we purposed in our hearts not to sin against God. And so the rest of the, the trials were just the outworking of that victorious decision and God's provision. If you want to have success in resisting temptation in your life, you need to first have success in getting into prayer and surrendering your will to Jesus, asking him for the power that you need. If you want to be a a nicer spouse or family member, it starts in your own personal Gethsemane. Daily coming to Jesus, coming to God in prayer, saying, God, I know what my will is, my natural sinful will but not my will, but your will be done. And this is a daily opportunity. It was Jesus' joy to pray. It wasn't a burden for him to talk with his Father. It's a daily opportunity to get the strength that we need. Jesus himself said to his disciples, he said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross occasionally and follow me. No? Once in his life, at summer camp, let him deny himself and take up his cross when it's convenient. How often? Daily. Take up his cross hourly. And before you get to the cross, you have to get to where? Gethsemane. You've got to get to the garden of prayer. Where in those moments you decide, okay, am I going to live today in my own strength? Or am I going to be 
empowered by the ultimate God of the universe. Am I going to use my human wisdom that's gotten me into big messes in the past today? Or am I going to tap into infinite wisdom and let him guide my decisions today? Gethsemane is an opportunity every single day to link up with one who knows no failure, who doesn't make mistakes, and unite yourself with his wisdom, with his love, with his strength. And by the way, the end of the story turned out really good for Jesus, right? God didn't promise that he wouldn't have to go through stuff, but God made the thing turn out really good. In fact, it says Jesus, in his own strength, raised himself from the grave. That resurrection power is what God wants to give us, empower us, and use in our lives. Some time ago, I saw a video on YouTube, like you do. Maybe it was on Facebook, but it was somewhere on the internet. And it was of an elk that had gotten trapped in a fence. I couldn't see if it was barbed wire or not, but it was a wire fence for sure. He was all tangled up, and apparently he'd run into this thing. One of his friends had run into it also. And he ran into it, and when you're caught in something like that, you just want to get yourself free. So you're thrashing all about and doing all sorts of things like that. But usually it just makes it worse. And the more he thrashed about, the more it actually hurt the elk, it would appear. His attempts to free himself were unsuccessful. And so two guys uh, show up in this video, and they have wire cutters. And they're trying to help this elk. But I don't know if you've seen elk before, but they're pretty big. And they have, you know, if they've got their, their antlers on, they're really big, and they're really pokey. Uh, very dangerous, big bull elk. But these guys had compassion on it, and so they're trying to get in close enough, trying to snip the appropriate wires, uh, and the elk would, would thrash about, and then they'd have to back up because they just couldn't do anything. And so the one friend is trying to hold the elk's antlers while the other guy is trying to cut where it needs to be cut. And I thought about this as, as an illustration for our lives. God is trying to get us to be still and surrender because he wants to set us free. And the more we resist, the more we're just hurting ourselves in the things we've gotten ourselves ensnared in. And God is just saying, trust me. It's going to be better if you let me. Eventually, that elk calmed down enough that he was able to be set free. What about you and me? Today, we have a Gethsemane opportunity to get to God in prayer, spend quality time, and unload the burdens of our heart to him. He wants to help us with our bitterness. He wants to help us with our insecurities. He wants to give us wisdom for the future. He wants to heal our broken hearts. The only way for us to truly be set free is to surrender 
to the great God of love this day and each day. So what's your desire today? I challenge you, I challenge myself, go to Gethsemane, get to prayer, and get set free by the God who loves you now and forever. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Jesus, in that garden, you did not want to surrender but you knew it was the only way. And so you went through that for us. Lord, I'm so thankful that you took that penalty for us because we couldn't bear it. But you bore that for us. And I'm glad that, that we won't have to go through something like that. But nevertheless, all of us have trials. All of us have difficulties and challenges. And so today, Lord, help us to have the courage and the focus to come to you in prayer. Each day to fight through the distractions and difficulties and spend quality time unloading the burdens of our heart and letting you fill us with your spirit, with your peace, and with your strength for the day. Thank you for winning the battle there, winning it on the cross. And by faith, Lord, thank you for winning it in our lives today and each day until you come. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everybody say, Amen. Amen. Amen.